Drive Time 91.3. Always on the cutting edge. Voice of the Cape Drive Time, welcome back to the show. Historically, poverty has been predominantly dealt with as a lack of material resources or as an income deprivation issue. In countries like Angola, for example, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, multinational companies prevent wealth from reaching the majority of citizens. But why are the continent's people so poor, yet there are so many natural resources and mineral reserves? Online is Dr. Mia Perry, Senior Lecturer, Education, Arts and Literacies at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Mia Perry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is an amazing uh, question, isn't it? Um, the paradox of Africa, huge natural resources, lots of mineral reserves, but parallel to extreme poverty when the opposite uh, should in fact uh, be the case. Yes. Yes, we, um, we work, I work with um, a number of colleagues across the continent of Africa from the east to the west and down to the south and um, we base a lot of our work on the fact that it, the world is interconnected and yet the connections between the global north and the global south and the rich and the poor the connections are often what we feel is at fault in um, the reasons that we've become in we've got ourselves in such a situation of inequality yeah I mean it's an African example I mean we've got a, a massive railway line on our west coast that um, mm-hmm. the ore goes into a train that goes all all the way to the Cape Town Harbour. It's put onto a ship, and uh, six months later, we buy that all back in the form of a Toyota. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's obviously a really complicated problem, and I think that there's no simple solution. But poverty in itself, the lack of in itself, is a complex situation. It's not about a lack of one particular thing. What's poverty for me is different from for you and for friends in other parts of the world. And so I think what um, what we take, what we assume in the work that we do is that if poverty is complex, then our approach and solutions and contributions to poverty need to be as complex. And I think we generally, in academia and research and development, we don't have enough skills at looking at things from multiple perspectives. We usually develop a resource, whether it's money or grain or technology. We usually develop an expertise, and that singular contribution is what we have to give. And usually that just causes different problems in itself. By providing one solution to complex problems, we usually create new sets of problems. Um, So again, I think it's the nature of our partnerships and relationships that really are at fault in the vast inequality that we now experience. Yeah, it's almost uh, uh, telling us that development, whatever it might be, and that's another debate, has to mm-hmm. be con- has to be conditional. Um, if you take an example like Angola or the DRC, which is currently being raped uh, to the ground by multinationals, um, some of them yeah. in South African, unfortunately, um, that the model uh. is money. It's all about money. Um, perhaps yeah. if one takes money out of the equation and says, all right, quid pro quo, um, if you want to mine in our country, you must give so many jobs, you must build so many houses. It could be done rather than yeah. on a monetary basis. Uh, am I making sense if I say that? Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think one of the challenges I find from working from the global north context that I do is that 
it's um, not enough to say, I agree with you, I think that money often is part of the problem. But when you work with communities in extreme poverty, it's not enough to begin from that position, saying money is not the problem, we need to look in another way. Because in extreme poverty, um, it's, it's primary needs, and money can be a quick solution to primary needs. So instead, the way that we think about it is money can be part of the problem, but it also can be part of the solution only if it comes in uh, conditional, as you say, in combination with um, co-design of solutions and co-ownership of the the journey towards solutions. If only if it comes along with culturally appropriate practices, with education, um, with context-specific plans then it can be part of the solution. But I think we are driven by money as a primary influencing factor, and that, I completely agree, is often to the downfall of countries that are most in need of it. It's a crazy equation sometimes. I mean, I can tell you with greatest of confidence that in certain parts of Africa to which I've traveled, the route out for them uh, from poverty is a water well which will probably cost you only $5,000 because once that village, for example, has water, they have mm-hmm. sanitation. Um, they're able to um, irrigate crops so they become self-sufficient. And it, from there on, it's just a win-win. It just takes $5,000 and not $5 million or $5 billion. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But it also takes $5,000, but it also takes, sometimes it also takes community cohesion, community recovery. Uh-huh. A lot of communities that have been living in resource-poor, um, marginalized positions for a long time need more than just, even if it's a small resource, need more than just the actual material resource of the well or the money. They actually need all sorts of other things to repair the damage that inequality and poverty has often created people who feel um, rejected and without hope and people who feel impoverished in other ways that money could never equate to Um, so again even if it's just a small solution i think the solution needs to be multifaceted in order for it to be sustainable because we see in the work we do in africa we see many um new new well new irrigation systems wells um cooking systems and they're taken they're received by the communities because they're given but then they're abandoned because they're not sustainable because it didn't it wasn't enough it didn't make sense in that context so we see lots of abandoned great gifts and initiatives in Africa as well. And again, we think that it's just down to a sort of um, short-sightedness and a narrow-mindedness of how we can partner with people in need. No, 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 absolutely. I agree with you there. Um, obviously, the, the corollary to the $5,000 for the well um, would be $5,000 maybe for seeds, another $5,000 mm-hmm. for construction, whereas uh, one sort of school of thought would say, okay, we need to throw $50,000 at that problem, um, thinking they can solve it. But if you break it down, um, it, it's amazing how, I suppose, easy it is when you break things down. Obviously, it takes a lot of application and effort. You can't just throw things at a problem and expect it to go away. But it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to take as much as we think it does to to change the lot of, of, of people in the most positive sense because once they are able and empowered to pick up on these things, it, the, the burden on the giver becomes less and less. Exactly, exactly. And actually different types of communities need different amounts of money. And what I also find which brings us the most sort of urgency and desperation is that a lot of large uh, gifts of resources caused new problems that were much bigger than the first problems. So, you know, as you said, a $50,000 solution might be a new, to- new type of grain or a new type of um, food that would decrease 
um, food poverty, and yet that brings together new health problems, and health problems that are much more difficult and complicated to, to resolve than the initial poverty problem. Because again, we thought, oh, we'll just give, we'll just fix the problem with money. So it actually, not only are these these solutions not sustainable, but they are actually creating bigger and bigger problems for the world to face, and not helping the inequality, but increasing the inequality is what we experience. Do you think there's sufficient awareness of um, what we are discussing? I know that a lot of um, humanitarian NGOs are very wise to this, but it's frustrating for them because they um, have limited resources. Um, They have to spend a lot of their time just raising funds so that they can do what they want to do. So it's difficult for them, but instinctively it seems as if a lot of NGOs have already cottoned on to what needs to be done, but they're not empowered. That's true. I think it's quite complicated. I think a lot of people who move into development and humanitarian aid often go with the greatest of intentions, and they often come from places of relative privilege or security. And sometimes I find that our our best intentions are not really always our biggest help. So if you imagine someone like me who grew up in the UK and North America, and I might have the best intention and ability to go and help somebody who is marginalized or in poverty, my ideas of what that person needs aren't, aren't useful. They're not relevant. In fact, they come from a very different sense of value system and cultural background and history. So I, although I agree with you, there is lots of wisdom philosophically around the world at this point, around working across cultures. Often it's those people with the best intentions that haven't actually stopped to question whether their time, their age, their gift is actually the most useful thing. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is, is actually sit down and listen to what somebody else needs and you may not agree with it you may you may not be able to imagine how that person wants that and would live that way but it's those differences that are I, we we believe in the sustainable futures and african network that i work with we believe it's in that listening and that relationship where we might find a different sort of path to working together rather than the white woman which is me and my good intentions and what i think um the poor community in uganda needs um of course that that doesn't make any sense to the the community in uganda why would i possibly have the solution um so it's about listening and co-collaborating and co-design that we really think is a pathway to solution it's just very difficult to do um so i think it's why it's not done very often it's very difficult to do but we're working on it and i also am very hopeful like you Yes, indeed. I mean, it's crazy what comes up. I'll give you an anecdotal example. A village in Niger, which, as you know, a very poor country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the woman told us, um, yeah, that we've only, there were three of them. They only had one dress between the three of them that they could use to go to town to mm-hmm. either look for work or to, or, to, or to do shopping or something. And what they actually needed was clothes. It's as simple as that. Once yeah. they had clothes, they could move into the city. But who would have thought of that in the beginning? It's, it's absolutely yeah. amazing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. The simplest thing sometimes. Yeah. Dr. Mia Perry, it's uh, been a pleasure chatting to you. I see the five o'clock news is screaming down upon us. But uh, okay. lecturer at University of Glasgow, education, arts, literacies. And uh, yeah, we're just trying to get our heads around the whole issue of poverty is it not just about money but uh, dr mia perry thanks for chatting to us enjoy the rest of the week thank you very much for having me